Come on, son, 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 son. son. <laughs> Raphael on the track. What up, y'all? Ed Lover with another Good Son, the podcast brought to you by CigarsInternational.com. CigarsInternational.com is where I go for all my uh, cigar needs, and that's where you should go to CigarsInternational.com. Uh, thanks to everybody over there at Cigars International for looking out. Uh, let's get right to the podcast. Today's podcast, uh, y'all might have heard just the mini podcast I just gave y'all on uh, Mary J. Blige. I just gave y'all a shorty, a quickie. And the reason for that was because I was in the dentist and didn't get an opportunity to do a podcast because I had some root canal work done a couple of weeks ago, but my front tooth fell out in the weeks that were following. And I had to go to the doctor to get my, uh, thank God I saved my front tooth that fell out because I really started to throw it away. But I had to go to the doctor to get um, it cemented in for right now because I have to get a dental implant um, for my front tooth put in my mouth because I was having some problems with the roots under the front tooth in my mouth. Ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you something. Dentistry can be expensive without the shadow of a doubt. So if you haven't been in a while, and that's purely my fault because I've always had dental insurance for as long as I can remember. I suggest that you take your black asses or white asses or whatever color asses you are, uh, or whatever color, whatever not color but ethnicity that you are, and take your ass to the dentist and get a checkup because there may be some things going on in your mouth that you don't know about. Okay, because there was a lot of stuff going on in my mouth that I didn't know about. I was wondering why my teeth were hurting so bad and it had a lot to do with my gums. Um, I was just one of those people that didn't like the dentist at all. I didn't like it. It hurt. You know, you don't like people sticking needles in your gums to numb your mouth. But the result is oral surgery um, going down the line around June 9th to June 10th. I have to go in and have an implant um, put in and then um, another tooth put in my mouth. But for the time being, he was able to cement my front tooth back in my mouth. So I'm able to give y'all an addition to the Mary J. Blige quickie that I gave y'all. And I was just thinking about Mary J. Blige. I met Mary J. Blige um, a long time ago. I was living in a two-bedroom apartment with my man Todd One, Todd Brown, a.k.a. Todd One from MTV, um, Fade to Black. And Todd also, back when I was doing your MTV raps, was one of the producers on your MTV raps. That's how we met, and there was an apartment up for rent in uh, Jersey City, New Jersey, right near the Path Path Train Station, excuse me. Um, Sometimes I talk so fast that I slip over my damn mouth. Uh, New day, first day with the new tongue, as they say. Near the Path Train Station in Jersey City, New Jersey. And Todd and I were roommates. So uh, there was this young lady from up in that Yonkers area by the name of Tanya Brown. And Todd and Tanya were kind of seeing each other. And, you know, when you've got a roommate and he's seeing somebody and you kind of single, you always, what's up? She got any friends or whatever. So uh, she brought this girl over named Nikki. And uh, Nikki and I kind of hit it off. But nothing ever really transpired between us. We were just, it wasn't really romantically. It was always on the fringes of being romantic. But it wasn't, you know, one of those things. Like, I think she kind of dug me and I kind of dug her. But I think our heads were in two different places. Uh at the time. So uh, Tanya calls one day 
And she's like, Ed, what's good? I'm like, what's good? She's like, nothing. Um, what you guys doing? Todd around? I'm like, yo, Todd might not be around late. I think he got to work late, but I'm going to be home, you know. And uh, which was happening. She was like, well, me and Nikki and uh, some of the girls, you know, see what's up with y'all. Maybe we can play some cards and just kick it at your crib. I was like, okay, cool. Now, let me give y'all a setup of my place. We had a two-bedroom, one-bathroom. Both of the bedrooms were downstairs, but that was a different floor than the upstairs. Then there was a spiral staircase, and upstairs was the kitchen, the living room, and the dining room. And then there was another uh, spiral staircase, and that was a loft space and a roof because we had the roof. That's the first time I've ever had a roof deck. Um, so there was nothing up there, you know, major. Like, we could put a barbecue up there, some chairs and stuff, but it was nothing compared to the roof deck I had when I lived in L.A., but that's a totally different story. Okay, I tell Tanya, cool. Yeah, why don't y'all come over sometime tonight, 7, 8-ish, 8.30. You know, they're going to drive down from Yonkers. We live in New Jersey. Okay, so I'm there. I'm at the crib. I pick up the phone. I call Todd. I don't want, you know, Todd to get upset. Maybe he don't want to see Tanya. Maybe I got to call Tanya back and tell her, nah. You know, Todd got some other slimy. He's sliding over. We're roommates. You don't ambush your damn roommate by having a girl that he was dealing with at the crib when he comes home just because you want to hang out with her and her girls and y'all are cool. You don't do that. You always get that permission first. Part of the bro code, always get the permission. So Todd said, all right, go ahead. Cool. When I come home, I don't know how tired I'll be, but, I, you know, whatever. You know, it might be a nice night for him, whatever. But Tanya and uh, Nikki and the girls come over. Matter of fact, I don't even think Nikki came that night. I think just Tanya came and we all playing cards and we all chilling. And Mary is there. She introduced her to me as Mary. Just, this is my homegirl, Mary. So I'm like, all right, cool, cool. So we playing cards and, you know, having a couple of drinks. Everybody's having a good time, playing a little spades. You know, people underbidding, overbidding. You know, the regular spades game, laughing. If you know spades, you know how the, the game goes. There's always going to be some laughter and some fun. So while we're playing spades, Tanya says, Ed, Mary sings. And I go, really? I was like, Mary, do you sing? She goes, like, I sing a little bit. And I was like, time was like, sing something for Ed, Mary. Sing something for Ed, Mary. Ed has a lot of connections in the music business. And at the time, I did. I did. I knew a lot of people, and I still do, but more so then because back then that music industry was booming. And I mean, really, really booming. Like, there's a lot of great R&B and stuff that was coming out from all over the place. And the record business was booming. They were making money. They were selling records. Records were selling physical records. Like, to me, that means something when people really go to the store and physically pick up your record and say that I want it. To me, it even means something when somebody pays for your record online to download it. Nowadays, it's, oh, he did a million streams. Like, to me, streaming is just on. And then if your song just happened to be played while it's on, you get, it gets counted, like, and these artists are not really making a lot of money from streaming. Like, the record companies and the artists ain't getting the money that they're supposed to get from streaming, comparatively speaking, to actual purchasing of a record. So that meant a lot. There was a lot of records being sold. You have to remember, uh, before that, Michael Jackson had did $40 million on, on, you know, Thriller. And Prince had did 10 15 almost $20 million on Purple Rain. So... We're talking about the early 90s, you know, after Mike and, you know, there was just so many groups out there and people were actually selling records. So I just wanted y'all to get my point that people were actually purchasing 
records. So if you were a talent, it was a good time to get into the music business because you could actually sell some records. You know, it was Heavy D and the Boys, it was Salt and Pepper. I mean, there was groups out there that were selling records. Like, Head First Album went gold, I think, and eventually went platinum. Like, off your first record when nobody ever heard of you, amazing. People were making videos at the time, you know? Okay, so let's get back to the Spades game my house. Tanya telling me, hey, Mary can sing. Ed has connections in the music business. So I said, yeah, Mary, you know, if you're good, I'll, you know, look around, see what I can do. So Mary didn't want to sing. No, no, I don't. I'm, I'm just, just want to cool out. And they kept egging her. Come on, Mary, you got a beautiful voice. Sing something, sing something, sing something. I'll never forget this. Mary stood up and she sang a song called Go Outside in the Rain. Now, the song was made famous by a young lady by the name of Malira. And Malira did an excellent job. And if you, hey, next to your computer, Google it. Malira, go outside in the rain. The day is done, and there's no one inside this empty house to hold me. Now, I'm not a great singer, but that's the melody of the song. So Mary sits up in my house, and she sings that song by Malira. And I promise you, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls and children of all ages, the hair on my arms stood up. I've always been hairy, but I don't have a lot of chest hair, but my hair grows quickly. I always have a lot of hair. My, my hair on my arms, the little bit of hair on the back of my neck, because I actually had hair I wasn't bald in, stood up. Stood up. I mean, I got chills. I had never heard such a raw talent like that before in my life. And I had people approach me about this person can sing, this person she sounds like Whitney Houston, and then you hear her sing, and you like, she sounds like Missy Houston, like she missed the Houston bus because she ain't Whitney, you know. But Mary's, I was absolutely taken aback. Like I knew at that very first moment that I heard her sing that I was listening to a special talent, like a really, really raw special. She was raw, but she was a special talent. And I don't proclaim to be no big time talent scout whatsoever. But I knew it when I heard it. And I promise you, I wrote down every single number that I had. I asked her, what are you doing with your voice? She said, I just made a tape. She had made a tape in a mall, right? In one of those, like, karaoke booths. She made a tape and she gave it to her. I think it was a family member of hers. I can't remember exactly whether it was uncle or cousin. This is revisionist history, so stick with me. Um... And uh, she made that tape, and, it, and, and whoever it was in her family was supposed to take it to Andre Harrell. So I told her, if nothing becomes of that, please call me. Call me. And if I'm not in my mom's house, I'm not answering my cell or whatever. I'm not answering the phone here or page me. or I know I don't think I had a cell phone then, but don't whatever. I can't remember exactly. But you, it's my grandmother's number. Girl, you're fantastic. <clears throat> I know Russell Simmons. I know Leo Cohen. I know people all over the place. We're going to get you a record deal. There's no way in hell nobody's going to sign you. Well, as uh, legend has it, Andre Harrell heard the same thing I heard. Signed her, gave her the puff, and the rest is history. And Puff took her, and he took hits from the 70s and 80s. Yeah, yeah. It made him sound so crazy. And Mary J. Blige was born 
and has been a staple and iconic figure in the music business from that day forth. From the first time Andre signed her and was smart enough to put her with Puff. And I remember uh, they did the Father MC, you know, the Father MC record that she did. Um, I remember her very, Love No Limit, all the, all the great songs. You remind me, you know, um, the remix with Biggie when it was a young Biggie, um, you know. But, you know, You Remind Me was a, a, a takeoff of a Patrice Russian song. And, uh, you know, all of that uh, Look Up in the Sky, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, all that, that's all samples. And uh, there's there's been a debate, and the reason why I brought that up is because I was thinking about, you know, how much great music has not only come from Mary, but from a lot of the artists of every generation, especially starting with the very first hip-hop, commercially successful hip-hop record, which was Rapper's Delight, um, commercially successful. King Tim III, personality jock, actually came out before Rapper's Delight, um, know your history, folks. You could you just research this if you care to. But Rapper's Delight was the first hip hop record, um, commercially successful hip hop record, super successful. And it didn't sample, but it borrowed from Chic, Good Times. All of that. And then Mary's early, early stuff was samples. All her remixes were samples. You know, it was just sample, 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 sample. Like, everybody was sampling. Um, uh, Heavy D, uh, you know, Mr. Big Stuff. Uh, you know, who do you think you are, Mr. Big Stuff? Go back and look the song up. That was a song before Heavy D ever made the song. You know, the, um, the, uh, even when he did You Ain't Heard Nothing Yet, boom. Dude, that's Mr. Magic, Grove Washington Jr. Then he took it, flipped it again, and gave it to So For Real for Candy Rain Remix. All samples. I mean, in those days, Puff was the king of sampling. Puff would take hits from the 80s, yeah, yeah, and make them sound so crazy. And sometimes it's the 70s, too. Hypnotized by Biggie. Uh, uh, uh. That's uh, Herb Alpert's rise. Um, Run DMC, Peter Piper, Bob James, Welcome to the Mardi Gras. Um, Pete Rock sampler. Uh, come on, some of the greatest, even the Bomb Squad, Public Enemy, a lot of James Brown. A lot of James Brown. What the Bomb Squad did that was different is they cut it into small little samples. Early NWA stuff that you hear, sample, too short. You know, NWA followed behind the Bomb Squad, what they, uh, Dr. Dre did with his sampling techniques by taking just a little smidget of it and making it something. Different, too short. The first time I heard too short, life is too short. That's Schoolboy Crush by um, it's the White Boys. I'm not not pieces of a dream. Uh, they they may pick up the pieces too. Y'all just y'all look it up right now. I got a mind fart. I can't think of the name of the group, but that's that's where that came from. That's where that and then later on, uh, one twelve did it. Same damn groove. Like so many people have sampled the same thing, but either slowed it down, sped it up, made it different. You know, sampling that came in heavy in the band back in the uh, rappers or the MC had faded away slowly. You know, so it was all all of those samples and stuff like that that was going out for a long time. Even with the bass heavy down south music, a lot of that you can attribute 
to sampling of uh, Africa Bambada and the Soul Sonic Force, you know, which wasn't a sample. I mean, they might have sampled drum power, drum sounds, but you sample drum sounds and make something 100%, you know, totally different. And that's what people were doing in those days. And, uh, you know, a lot of the people that have made it as an icon in the music business were heavy samplers. People still sample in hip hop to this day. It may not be as obvious, but it's still a sample, which leads me to the question that I've had many debates with people about this. When it comes to hip hop, what's more important, the people that actually created the music or the people that sample? Like one of my favorite songs by Kanye West is the one with him and T-Pain, you know? I'ma be on MTV, mama, I'ma, I'ma bring it down. Hey, hey, I'm good. Welcome to the good life. Now, listen to the song. The song is dope. The lyrics is dope. Uh, having T-Pain sing on there is dope. Uh, Kanye was very dope on that song. But a lot of that song is PYT by Michael Jackson. It's I wanna love you, PYT. Check it if y'all think I'm lying. Sample Good Life by Kanye West to see if PYT is not in there. And it's so, so forward that you can hear it. It's just slowed down. So does that make Kanye West a genius? And I think Kanye West is a dope-ass producer. I think Jay Dilla is a dope-ass producer. I think a lot of... The, I, can't, I could go on and on. Come on. I could go... I could go... Large Professor. I mean, Premier. I don't want to start rattling people off because if some of my contemporaries or peers or people that I've loved for a long time hear this, they might feel bad because I left them out. And it's from my mind, not from my heart. But you guys know out there, there's been a lot of incredible producers. Dr. Drake, he's nothing but a G thing, right? That's a sample. Do, 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 do. That's I want to do something freaky to you by Leon Haywood right now. So all that sampling, man, has been going on for a long time. So what's the most important point? Is it the originator or is it the person that makes something new out of somebody else's music? And it's a tough one to call because would they be as dope if they couldn't sample, would Mace be Mace without cooling the game? What you know about going out head of red, doom, 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 and then Hollywood. That's Hollywood swinging by cooling the game. That's original. That's not a sample. Cooling the game created that. Would Mace have had that hit? A bad, 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 bad boy. You make me feel so good. Would that have been the biggest hit without cooling the game? Because they have created. Something so stunning out of nothing, the way Cooling the Gang did, the way Bob James did. With Peter Piper by Run DMC be as dope without Bob James creating Welcome to the Mardi Gras? Would Snoop be that dope without George Clinton? Would NWA have been that dope without I Make You Weak in the Knees, which Jay Z and, and, and Jermaine Dupree went and took the same sample? You know, after after NWA put out Gangsta Gangsta later on in life, JD took the same sample, flipped it again, and him, him and Jay-Z had a hit with Money Anything. Would Jay-Z have been as dope 
but people producing for Jay-Z been as dope without Can't Knock the Hustle. Can't Knock the Hustle is not original. That's not, I'm taking too much time to give you a piece of my mind. That's not that 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 wasn't original. Even with Mary singing, that that was not original. No, I'll be there waiting for you. It's called the Fool's Paradise. That's the original song. That's the song. Would they have been as successful without the producers behind them? Not sampling. If those guys could not sample, if, if there was no sample for Life's a Bitch by Nas or, or The World is Yours or, or, or some of the stuff that KRS was involved in, if, those, if there were no samples, if they had to make it up, if these producers had to go in the studio and produce the way James Brown and them did, Funky Drummer's a big part of Fight the Power. Bomb Squad slowed it down. They did something to it. They might have ran it through something, but it's still they had to pay. They had to pay. We all love Warning, but Warning by Biggie was Isaac Hayes' Walk On By, and, and, and Isaac Hayes did a remix, but he put new music on it, okay? He re-sang somebody else's song. Now, people re-performing songs that have been written by other people is not the same thing as sampling. Okay, Whitney Houston is not the first one to sing The Greatest Love of All. Okay, nor is she the first one to, to sing I'm Every Woman. That's Shaka Khan and Rufus. That's the, I'm not even sure who wrote that. It might have been Rufus, but that was an original Shaka Khan record. All the women loved that record. Some of Beyonce's biggest hits contain samples, big-time samples. I mean... These producers know how to hide the sample. One of my one of my favorite favorite groups, it's a tribe called Quest. Q-Tip just found another source to sample from, and it wasn't the run-of-the-mill stuff that everybody was grabbing and regurgitating and rehashing. He went to the jazz and found a way to sample. When I was in a band, sometimes you make up your own stuff, but you just change a note or two. And, and, and you groove on it, and it becomes something new. It's not the same song. It may sound like the same couple of notes, but if you play it differently, it becomes something new. That's what music is. Music, the notes are the notes. The basic scale of notes and sharps and flats and all that is all the same. It's your interpretation of those notes and, and what you decide to do with those notes. So once again, I ask the people that created this stuff, the people that really don't get their props for being the backbone of hip hop. You know, a lot of a lot of these, a lot of it, man. You know, knee deep. Not so knee deep, too, totally deep. That's me, myself, and I. That was one of De La Soul's biggest records. But it was knee deep by Parliament and George Clinton and them before De La Soul and Prince Paul and them sampled it. It wasn't even that much of a stretch. They just kind of rhymed over it the way we used to rhyme over beats in the park. Run DMC's one. Oh, my God. The record that put them over the top. Walk This Way. Aerosmith. Aerosmith. There was nobody before Aerosmith that did that. Aerosmith did that. So what's more important? Is Run DMC a genius for taking that and rhyming over it? Or is Aerosmith the geniuses for creating it from nothing? Because we always hold these producers up as such, you know, up there way, especially when it comes to hip-hop, way, you know, high on the pedestal, on the throne. 
so to speak. I mean, Kanye made a song, uh, album with Jay-Z called Watch the Throne. They sampled Otis Redding. <laughs> you know what I mean? So uh, was it Otis Redding or was it, I mean, yeah, lyrically dope. The way it got flipped, I'm not taking anything away from it. I'm just asking a question. This is just something for you guys to contemplate. I'm not saying one thing is more important than the other one. I think they both are of grave importance to music. I think there is talent to be able to take something and flip it and make something brand new out of it. What do you guys think? Is the, is the sampling the most important or the person who originated the sample? I thought about that because, you know, I was listening to Moni Love do a... Uh, buying a hip-hop on X, DMX, and I realized, wow, you know, I've been a DMX fan since day one. And she was saying that uh, in 1998, DMX dropped is dark and hell is hot, and that's a very complete album. I love that album from the beginning to the end, like other albums. And for a debut album, I thought that album was really, really amazing. And a lot of that... 20 years old almost. So, you know, that's old school now. And if you go back further than that, then God, you know, Nas and early J came out in 96. Nas way back then, you go, you know, Kane and Rock Kim and all that stuff is super old school. You know, KRS One and all of them. That that's that's old school. So that sampling has been around for a very long time. We the, the uh artists have been sampling, so Again, I, I put it out there for you guys to form an opinion on. And please hit us up and let us know what you think about it, right? What's, what's the important? What's more important? What's more important? The, the originators who a lot of times get absolutely no damn credit for what they originated. None. I see these people, I bow down. Though, let me tell you something. I met Bob James at Sirius XM, older gentleman, comes walking through, and I gave him his flowers while he was alive. I told him how much he meant to music. I did the same thing with Smokey Robinson. These guys originated this stuff from nothing, and I just think it's a shame that we pass over them. I just think it's a shame that we don't acknowledge our pioneers. Like, it takes somebody else, like the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, to acknowledge our pioneers. Why why we didn't why don't we have a legitimate hip hop hall of fame? Why we gotta wait for the, the rock and roll hall of fame to put Tupac in there? We all know Tupac deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Right? But he's a hip hop artist and one of the greatest ones to ever do it. So why we gotta wait for the rock and roll hall of fame to acknowledge him? Why we don't have our own shit? Why we can't get that together? Like, is it being done purposely? Are they trying to erase our culture? Are we trying to erase our own damn culture? That's a good question, too. Are we Because when we do this, when we don't acknowledge history, I've always been a person that acknowledged history, even from when I was really, really young. Even when my parents were always playing music in my house, and, you know, you hear that cliche all the time, which I played trumpet in a band in school, all throughout school, and in a top 40 band outside of school. 
And I was a line of notes reader. When I got that album, I wanted to know who did what. I, you know, I knew Don Myrick played the horn, the alto, on, on the Reasons, live version of Reasons from Earth, Wind & Fire. I, I knew this stuff, man. I, I knew, you know, Jer- who Jerry Hay was. I knew, you know, who wrote Always and Forever. And then when I saw it come up on Michael Jackson's album, I was like, wow. I knew Quincy Jones was 13, 14-year-old trumpet player playing with Lionel Hampton. I know who Quincy Jones was before he ever produced Michael Jackson. I know exactly who Quincy Jones was because my band used to play the theme to Sanford and Son, right? Whenever our, uh, our band leader would go out and talk to another teacher in the hallway or walk away from us for a minute to take care of something, somebody would start up something that they saw on TV, man, and the whole band being there rocking, you know, with a really dope, funky underbeat to it playing Sanford and Son, you know, and then he comes back in the room and he stops us from playing Sanford and Son and he goes, I'm not going to let y'all, I like the way y'all was playing that. I thought it was groovy, you know, because he was a jazz, uh, jazz saxophone himself, Mr. Charles Williams. He's like, I thought that was groovy, but y'all can't continue playing that until somebody told me, tell me who wrote the theme to Sanford and Son. And I raised my hand because I've been watching them credits. And he was like, James, because my first name is James. I think y'all know that. You can Google that and find that out. And I said, yes, Mr. Williams, the theme from Sanford and Son was written and produced by Quincy Jones. And he looked at me like, wow, how did you know that? Because I've always been a person that likes to know who and what and how and whatever came before me. And I think over the course of a period of time, we lost that. And I think over the course of a period of time, we continue to lose that. And if we continue to lose that, then it's going to happen again and again and again. And 10 years, 15 years down the line, will the young kids look at future like he didn't make a mark? Will they look at Yo Gotti like he didn't make a mark? I mean, the only reason why we still really look at Jay-Z like that is not for the music. It's for the business. And Puff the same way. I mean, if them dudes didn't have the $750, $800 million that they have, these kids wouldn't acknowledge them for, for their greatness and for their talent. They wouldn't at all. I mean, shit, they don't really even acknowledge me unless their parents tell them what Young TV raps meant to hip-hop culture overall. You know? You know, the first uh, international hip-hop video show, you know, there were regional shows before us, and we all know that. You probably had one in your town, but we were international, and there's a lot of people that learn to speak English around the globe by watching your own TV raps, got that first taste of hip-hop from watching your own TV raps. So I think it's important for us to always understand history, especially when it comes to music. And then we go, oh, my God, such and such a passed away. And then sometimes people passed away that were absolutely, oh, my God, so important to hip hop. And they barely get a blink of the eye, like Clyde McFadden. You ask yourself, who's Clyde McFadden? He's a drummer that played funky drummer, okay, for James Brown. That solo was all him. And that was one of the most sampled beats in the history of hip hop. Whether it's slowed down, whether it's sped up, whether it's put on this record, that record, or the third. When it comes to hip-hop and R&B, that's one of the most sampled beats of all, if not the most. 
you know, and when he passed, it was just like, oh, a lot of people was like, oh, I, I don't even know who that is. In this day and age of Google, Wikipedia, whatever, a lot of times Wikipedia ain't right. So you can't go by everything Wikipedia say. That's not the gospel because you could change that. But a lot of the facts that's online are absolutely correct. So there is no reason to say I didn't know. If you could stop to take a damn selfie, you could stop to understand why somebody impact on the music business was so great. And especially if you're an artist yourself, always respect the artists that came before you. Always respect the people that changed the game for you, who made it possible for you to, to drive Ferraris and, 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 and Lambos and ghosts and, and enjoy a healthy, healthy living because of their sacrifice. Because they weren't getting that money. They wasn't getting it like that. Not at all. There was no $740 million, $750 million hip-hop artist. It still ain't. You got $740, $750 million businessmen. The closest one that y'all got out there at $90 million is Drake. But there's no $750 million straight off of hip-hop. Dre, Puff, Jay made their money off of other business ventures. It wasn't just rapping, okay? They ain't gonna let us get that money like that off of just rapping, okay? And Drake probably made the bulk of his money outside of his rap career too. You know, his touring probably had a lot to do with it, but shit, if that 90 million didn't come from all his other endeavors, you best believe that. So I'll leave you with this. First of all, thank you for listening to this podcast if you caught it. Um, another shout out to my executive producer, Krista Hayes, um, for always being on top of this and uh, my management, Kimana Paulus, um, Mana management team, um, and Cigars International. Thank you also, Cigars International. And I'll leave you with this. Here's something to contemplate. What's more important? The person who sampled and made something great out of something that was already there or the person that originated it, that made it from nothing. Let them both get their props for a job well done. Let them both get their accolades for a job well done while they are alive. Let's not wait until they pass away and acknowledge them. Let's always let them know that we think they're great. Let's always let them know that we think they're fantastic. And especially if you're an artist and you're sampling, don't get too gassed up on yourself because you didn't make that shit. That shit was already there when you got here. You might have finessed it and freaked it and did something cute with it and made it a new hit record, but the basis of your record is somebody else's composition. Okay? You're dope, but if you can't do it from scratch... If you can't make up something as dope as they did from nothing, then you're not as dope as they are. Don't get me wrong. You're dope. You're creative and all of that. Yeah, you the shit. Yeah, at some point, somebody's going to take a Michelangelo and do something, flip it a little way, and everybody's going to think that's the shit. But you ain't Michelangelo. You ain't Basquiat. You dope. But you ain't as dope as the motherfucker that did it from nothing that did it from a piano, that did it from a guitar, that did it from four taps on the floor, from did it from the one, two, three, four, hit it, that did that, that's a bad motherfucker. You a good motherfucker. 
That's a bad motherfucker. Y'all keep God first. Everything else will fall into place. I'll talk to you, with you, and about your ass the next time I do a podcast. I'm Ed Lover. This is Come On, Son, the podcast. All right? Be well, y'all. Till next time. I'm gone. This Ed Lover podcast is being done in conjunction with Cigars International. Make sure you check out CigarsInternational.com for all your cigar needs. This episode of Come On, Son, the podcast is produced and engineered by co-executive producers Kimana Paulus and Krista Hayes. Recorded at Mean Street Studios in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, this is an official Loudspeakers Network podcast.